into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. Good evening. We're in Matthew chapter 2. If you've got your Bible still handy, that would be good. Open them at page 966. I don't know what presents you got this over the last few days. Here's one that I got, not this Christmas, uh, but last Christmas. Um, and this is an escape room experience. Has anybody done an escape room? A few folk. Um, I think this is at Tully's, but I may not be quite right. Well, in an escape room, what happens is you go into this fairly small space and it is packed with clues. And you have to work out these clues to unlock the door and to move on to the next part of the, of the challenge. And the, the passage that we've just read is a little bit like an escape room at Tully's farm. It's, it's quite small, but it's absolutely packed with clues about who Jesus was. And uh, Matthew wants to set the scene before we move on to read the rest of the Gospel. Uh, and he's trying to set the scene that we are absolutely clear who Jesus was and that he comes as part of God's eternal plan. This is a, a, a picture of um, the calling of Levi, it's called, of, uh, of Matthew being called by Jesus away from his tax booth. And when Matthew first met Jesus, I guess he wouldn't have known he was anything very special perhaps, just a, a wandering rabbi. And yet Matthew came to understand, didn't he, that Jesus was the Son of God and that Jesus fulfilled everything that was set out in the Old Testament. That's something that Jesus said himself. And that is what Matthew is trying to tell us in these few uh, verses that we're looking at here. He's trying to tell us that Jesus is part of God's eternal plan and that therefore we can absolutely trust in the Lord Jesus and what he has done. And that's what we're really going to look at uh, th th this evening. How Matthew builds that picture up to assure us that Jesus is part of God's eternal plan through using these little clues, going back to the Old Testament, and then think a little bit about perhaps what that means for us uh, now as we're facing moving into a, a new year. And of course those clues are probably to Matthew's readers 2,000 years ago. Uh, he was writing for uh, Jewish Christians. They'd have been quite familiar with what Matthew was saying. They're a little less obvious to us now. So uh, we're just going to unpack a few of them. Um, well, this is the only Joseph in a Technicolor dream coat uh, uh, that I know, but here's our first clue. Uh, verse 19, an angel appears in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. 
And if you were to say now, angels, Joseph, dream, Egypt, this is what comes to mind. Maybe not a slightly fat Jason Jonathan. I don't know what's happened on... He's got a very funny shape on what I'm looking at. See? Yes, definitely put on weight there. <laughs> there we are. Sorry? It's Philip Schofield. It's not Jason Jonathan. He's changed and put on weight. Anyway, the point is that there's a little reminder there in that passage, isn't it? Uh, remember, Joseph was a son of Jacob. In fact, both Josephs are sons of Jacob's. Um, but Joseph, in the end, is the salvation of his family, isn't it? He is the one who allows his family to be rescued. And in due course, his descendants are going to head back from Egypt uh, to the promised land. The people of God will eventually receive their inheritance through Joseph. And so straight away, there's a little parallel there, isn't there? What's Jesus going to do? He's going to lead to us receiving our inheritance of eternal life. And then we've got that little reference in verse 19, just that little phrase, in Egypt. And that was something that um, Phil touched on uh, this morning, because uh, Matthew's already recorded that this is a fulfilment of Hosea uh, 11, the prophecy, out of Egypt I have called my son. So just that little phrase, in Egypt... It's just pointing me back to saying, this is God's son, prophesied back in Hosea. And then we've got this phrase that doesn't perhaps strike us in the same way, but in verse 20 and 21, twice we get that little phrase, the land of Israel. It seems to be quite deliberately uh, repeated, and it seems to be a reminder of the promise that was made to Moses way back in Exodus 6 where Moses was told to bring the people out of Egypt into the land promised to Abraham's descendants that is the land of Israel and of course Moses takes those people and he leads them from Egypt to the new land and the people fail miserably The kingdom of God is not established uh, in the land of Israel. And what Matthew is going to be setting out for us is here is a new Moses, if you like, who is going to succeed in establishing that new kingdom of God. And then again, verse 20, we've got this phrase, or this sentence almost, those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. And uh, Phil, this morning, was talking about that episode in Bethlehem and the slaughter of of the young children and the attempts to to murder Jesus. But that phrase, those who were trying to take the child's life are dead, is almost an exact copy of, where is it, Exodus 4.19. God says to Moses, go back to Egypt, for the people seeking your life are dead. Again, it seems to be drawing us in to understand that Jesus is part of this big picture of God establishing his people, of rescuing his people. And then we have one more. 
which is this reference to, to Nazareth. You get that in verse 23. We have this reference to the fulfillment of the prophets. He doesn't say a prophecy, does he? He says the prophets, that Jesus would be called a Nazarene. So, quick quiz. Does anybody know where that prophecy is? That Jesus would be called a Nazarene. Um, And if you do know, then you're a lot brighter than anybody else uh, because nobody's ever found where that prophecy is written. Nobody knows where it comes from. But it seems to be significant that Matthew refers to the prophets rather than a particular prophecy. It seems to be as though this was just a common saying. This is what people said. The Messiah will be a Nazarene. It seems to be a generic sort of phrase. But the question is, well, what does that mean for us? What is it, what is it pointing to? And there seem to be a number of different ideas all wrapped up in that one little word. Uh, and the first one is quite simply that Jesus would come from Nazareth. And that's simply what people uh, thought. I've got myself in the wrong order there. There we are. I was going to talk about that one. We'll put all three up. That's much simpler. Let's start again. The, um, what I meant to say was that uh, when Matthew was writing, they were called, um, the Christian believers were called Nazarenes. That was the description of Christians. So simply what he, uh, what he might have been meaning was just to say, Uh, Jesus would be the founder, would be the start of a new people of God. He would be the new new king, if you like, of the people. And the new people would be the Nazarenes. Now we call ourselves Christians. It might be that. Or it might be, what I was trying to say earlier, um, that he simply came from Nazareth. Now Nazareth, do you remember that comment in John Nathaniel makes about Nazareth? He says, nothing good comes out of Nazareth. And the trouble with these sermons going online is you can't be rude about anywhere without knowing you might upset someone. Because I suppose the modern equivalent would be saying something like, well, he's going to come from Slough, or he's going to come from Neasden, or Milton Keynes, and one can carry on insulting places around the UK uh, and wait for Phil to get letters of complaint. But you, you get the idea that the idea was that really the Messiah... Uh, was not going to be anything, anything special at all. Rather humble, in fact. Isaiah 53 says that the Messiah was despised, that there was nothing attractive about him. So this reference to Nazareth as a town seems to pick up that idea again. And then the other thing about this word Nazareth or Nazarene seems to be a bit of a pun, seems to be uh, a bit of a Hebrew pun on the word branch. And apparently they sound uh, very similar. And during the carol service we had one of the readings that referred to the Messiah being a branch coming from uh, the stump of Jesse. The image is that David's line, if you like, uh, is a tree stump, it's been chopped down, it's, it's effectively dead, but a new branch, a new shoot, starts growing out of that stump. Uh, and we get a prophecy, Zechariah 3 talks about God's coming servant, uh, 
just in those terms, the servant as a branch. So you get a whole lot of stuff just in that one word, Nazarene, that's pointing us back to the Old Testament, pointing us forward as well. We've got virtually the whole of the Old Testament, literally from Genesis to Zechariah, captured in all these various references, all these clues that Matthew has put into this passage. He's hammering home the point that Jesus is part of God's eternal plan uh, to rescue us, rescue us. He's showing us that the whole Bible, right from the beginning, was pointing us towards the Lord Jesus. And the point about that, the importance of that, is really one of assurance, isn't it? It's one of knowing that, as we said earlier, Jesus is not just some wandering rabbi who turned up, but he really is part of God's plan for each one of us. One commentator put this, They said, everything proceeds according to God's eternal plan so we can be sure that our salvation rests on a firm foundation. Those are great words, aren't they? Everything proceeds according to God's eternal plan so that we can be sure that salvation rests on a firm foundation. Well, that's lovely and that's reassuring. But I suppose there's always a bit of a so what, isn't it? What does that mean for me? It's nice to be assured, but we're looking forward into a a coming year. Uh, What what does that mean uh, in practice? Well, firstly, I think it means that we can absolutely trust in what God has done for us. And in fact, that's exactly what Joseph does. Look at verses 20 and 21. That seems so simple, doesn't it? The Lord speaks and Joseph trusts and obeys. Look at those verses. He has a dream and the Lord says to him, get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. And almost to reinforce the point, what are we told that Joseph does? He gets up, he takes the child and his mother and he goes to the land of Israel. Of Israel. It's quite remarkable in a way, isn't it? Joseph's clear on what God wants him to do, and he does it. He takes him at his word and trusts him. Now, Phil this morning was talking a little bit about uh, refugees and the situation that um, uh, Joseph and Mary found themselves in. Um, and when I was sort of preparing this, was thinking exactly the same, really that we have these very sort of sanitised pictures around, perhaps on Christmas cards, about uh, Joseph and Mary's predicament. But these sorts of pictures, and the one that uh, that, uh, Phil showed, perhaps try and remind us that this was was real. This was a difficult uh, situation. And it's very easy to romanticise this, but Joseph must have been worried, mustn't he? He's trying to support a, a, a young uh, mum and a young lad, might have been not much more than a baby. Uh, he's taking this family that's very vulnerable into what he knows is a potentially dangerous place. Okay, he knows Herod is dead, but he's clearly not too sure uh, what he's going to face. It's 
not a not an easy situation and it seems to me that at the turning of the year that may be how many of us feel we may be looking forward uh, to the coming year with a certain amount of uncertainty and I don't just mean Brexit I mean all sorts of personal stuff that's going in in our own lives so it's useful to think about Joseph in that situation knowing he has this God that he can trust what does he do? And I think the big question for me, when we see that he obeys, is you think, well, wouldn't it be nice if God spoke to me like that? It would be so much simpler, wouldn't it? If I had nice, clear dreams with God talking to me, telling me what to do, that would make life so much more straightforward. And that isn't our, our common experience. So how is, it that, how is it that I discern God's will for the coming year? Well, one thing we know about Joseph that we've had talked about earlier, uh, he's described as a righteous man. He's described as a just man. He, he, He knows the law. So he would have known his Bible. He would have known the Old Testament. When God spoke to him, he would have known God's character. He would have known about the person he was talking to through his word. And that is exactly the same for us today. As we, as we face the year ahead, we can know that God is speaking to us still through the Bible. Jim Packer describes the Bible as where God sets out his principles for living. He says that God gives us a highway along which we travel in life. So we need to, we need to read our Bibles We need to uh, read them in a way that allows God to speak to us through his word. And we need to allow his word to go deep. And that gives us, if you like, the highway. It gives us these principles to follow. But of course, Joseph did did have more than that, did he? He did have the Lord speak to him directly through a dream. Now, I was reflecting on some of my dreams and discovered that um, an awful lot of my dreams are in the top ten most common dreams in the country. I didn't realise there was a sort of ranking of dreams. Now, uh, for instance, one of them, a regular dream, is sitting down to do my geography A-level with having done no preparation at all. And it's still a recurring dream. I don't understand it. I didn't do geography A-level anyway, so quite my dream list, I don't know. But it's a regular dream. Um, I have to say, that dream, I don't think, is God telling me that I should do geography A-level. The dream we have in this little passage is quite clearly, isn't it? An angel of the Lord speaking to Joseph. But nonetheless, God does speak to us outside his word. We are given his word to give us the framework. He does speak to some of us in dreams. It will happen. So we will listen to, we will sometimes hear God speak in dreams. We will sometimes hear words of knowledge. We will sometimes hear prophecies. But of course, most of all, we have been given the Holy Spirit. And we've been given the Holy Spirit to help us, to guide us, to comfort us, and to help us to understand God's word as we read it. So maybe we don't have dreams, but we certainly have 
the Holy Spirit to help us understand our way through the coming year. But it's very interesting then to look exactly what Joseph does. So we've seen he gets up, he obeys God, he heads off to Judea. But look at what happens in verse 22. He's being obedient, he heads to Judea, and then he hears that. Now, everybody seems to pronounce this word differently. I'm going for Archelaus, but never mind. He hears that Archelaus is in power, and he changes his plan. It actually says, I think in our version, he withdraws or he retreats. So he's actually gone there and come back again. What he seems to be doing is being pretty sensible. Archelaus was a complete lunatic. Uh, Herod was bad. Everybody knew that Herod uh, was bad. Nobody was quite sure what was going to happen when Archelaus came in. Archelaus was even worse than Herod. He's certainly on record as having killed 3,000 people on one occasion for some sort of random reason that nobody's too clear about. In fact, Archelaus was so bad that even the Romans got fed up with him. Uh, and the Romans removed him from power, and they said, we're going to put our own man in, in future, uh, and they put in a governor, and that's why we end up with Pontius Pilate, trying Christ later on, and not a king, because Archelaus was such a homicidal nightmare. So when Joseph is faced with that situation, he's still being obedient, but he's also using his brain. You see, Jim Packer deliberately described the Bible as a highway, as this broad direction of travel. But we all know that within that, we have to use our God-given common sense, our Holy and Spirit-inspired wisdom to make those day-to-day decisions that are going to come up over the coming year. That's exactly what we see Joseph doing here. He trusts God, he obeys him, And then he uses his God-given common sense to make a sensible decision. So he's resting in that security of God, but he's also using his brain. Well, that's Joseph. What about Mary? I mean, Mary's almost a non-entity in this passage, isn't she? Verses 20 and 21, she's simply described as the boy's mother or his mother. She's not even given a name. And we don't really know very much about Mary, do we? In fact, we only know one really important thing about Mary, and that is that she's the mother of Jesus. That she is defined entirely by that relationship, her relationship to the Lord Jesus. And we have that reading over Christmas. It comes from John 1, famous reading. If we receive Jesus in our hearts, we become children of God, born of his Spirit. That is the only definition that matters when it comes to you and me. It is that relationship that we have with the Lord Jesus. Whatever label we give ourselves now, that's going to pass whether you call yourself, a, I don't know, a, a, a chief exec, whether you're a student, uh, whether you're a, a, a mum, whatever, all these relationships, all these titles, 
They will change. I'm going to retire this year. My job title will disappear. I shall be ripping up my business cards and things like that. Be a wonderful moment. The, my job title will pass. What defines me will change. And that will be true for many of us over the course of this year. Things will, things will change. But what won't change is what's really important. And that is that relationship with the Lord Jesus. Oh, there we are. There's Mary with her mother. We're going to sing uh, later on uh, the carol in the bleak midwinter. And uh, in the bleak midwinter talks about the greatness of the Lord Jesus. He is the Lord God Almighty. But in verse 3, it concentrates on Mary. And it uh, talks about her relationship with Jesus. And just kissing the baby Jesus. And one commentator says, even if the whole host of heaven may have gathered at the moment of Jesus' birth, this is a scene shaped by human relationship, an intimate moment between mother and child. And that is the relationship that we are offered in John 1, to be the child of God. And that is how Mary's life is defined. That's the most important thing about Mary. And actually, it's the most important thing about us too. And it's why the carol ends with talking about offering just our hearts. Because when our heart belongs to the Lord, then the relationship is right and we can trust in him. I, um, I quite like the Catholic catechism, I have to admit, at least some of it. Uh, and one of it describes our relationship with God like this. It says, our relationship is one of straightforward simplicity filial trust, brotherly trust, joyous assurance, humble obedience, and the certainty of being loved. That's that relationship based on that sure relationship. So it's not a bad start to the coming year, is it, this reading? Matthew reminds us with these various clues from the Old Testament that Jesus is indeed the Lord God Almighty sent to save us as part of God's eternal plan when we were lost in a, in a spiritual bleak midwinter. He wants us to know we can trust him, knowing that our salvation is secure. And as we seek to obey God by trusting in his word and listening to his spirit, we can do that in the certainty that we are loved by the Lord Jesus. Let's just pray for a moment. Father God, we thank you so much that from the dawn of time uh, you have set out to rescue us from uh, the results of our own behaviour. Thank you that we can trust in you and help us as we move into this coming year to put that trust into action. May we faithfully obey you and may we always stay close to you. Amen.